0: What are those magic words, you know, those words that work, that are useful for C-suite executives to make decisions on cybersecurity?
1: Uh, so, at the risk of being blunt, uh, the, the words that work uh, are profits. Um, so, if you say Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even
0: further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143
2: million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history.
0: Estimated losses from these breaches in excess
1: of $20 billion. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday person. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime, Dayton Williams. And this week, we're going to be speaking to a subject near and dear to our hearts, which is trying to communicate cybersecurity issues to non-technical audiences. This week, we will be interviewing Matthew Gorge, who wrote the book, The Cyber Elephant in the Boardroom. A book that details how to discuss cybersecurity issues to c-suite executives before we get into our interview matthew could you tell us a little bit more about yourself
1: yeah uh firstly thank you for talking to me today i Re- really appreciate it i'm uh, the-, the ceo and founder of a company called vg trust uh based in dublin in ireland with a sales office in paris and a support office in in new york I've been in cybersecurity for about uh, 23 years, um, moved from France to Ireland uh, many years ago, I never lost the accent, uh, and uh, started working in cybersecurity very, very quickly and uh, got a passion for the whole idea of educating people in, in cyber. I don't have a technical background, so um, when I started in, in working for a technology company uh, back in Ireland back in '99. I literally didn't have a clue what a client or a server was. I, I had to learn everything around networking and so on. But I was very lucky in that some people it, it explained it to me in plain business English. And that made it extremely easy for me to understand. And I thought maybe there's a market here. Uh, maybe what I could do is um, see if and how I can help people understand uh, cyber security, cyber accountability, and so on. So that, that, that's my background.
0: Yes, it's always interesting to hear when people approach the field uh, kind of as an outsider and then end up learning technology as as their secondary skill. It's, it's a much it's a very, you know, it's much more of a unique background. And since this is such a ubiquitous problem, you know, we really want to dive into how to communicate effectively with regards to cybersecurity, mm-hmm. especially to key decision makers. So getting into it, you know, like what are those magic words, you know, those words that work that are useful for C-suite executives to make decisions on cybersecurity?
1: Uh, so, at the risk of being blunt, uh, the, the worst at work uh, are profits, um, so if you say to them, look, if we do proper cybersecurity and proper compliance, it will actually impact uh, positively our profits, um, if you talk to them about putting cybersecurity as a, an item on on the, the board agenda in a way that you can actually turn it into an asset that actually has a value to the company and adds value to the company and something that you can put on your on your balance sheet and your 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 PL, you certainly get their attention. Um, I certainly would not start with the fear, uncertainty and doubt. Uh, of course, you need to say to them that their competitors are being hacked and that the regulators are knocking at the door and that potentially they themselves have been hacked. Um, but that's not actually creating an atmosphere of uh, um, getting them in- engaged. So in order to get them engaged, is what's in it for them, what's in it for the company. I think we need to understand that the, anybody on a board, anybody uh, at sea level, has uh, amazing skills, uh, business skills, um, but they deal with risk every day. They deal with financial risk, contractual risk, human resources risk, growth risk, many risk, and so on. And cyber is just another risk. Right, uh, It is, It is um, as opposed to being a, a horizontal risk, it's a transversal risk because it, it it goes across finance, it goes across HR, production and so on, but it's a risk and, and those people are well versed with dealing with risk and what we need to do is we need to say, hey, here's a risk that you can't ignore for legal and compliance reasons and so on. Um, and and we're going to talk to you in plain business english as to how you can actually address that risk pretty much the same way as you address any other risk on a on a daily basis
0: that's quite interesting i think there's a natural inclination from security per, uh, professionals to try to go for the more fear route you know because it's a complicated subject matter they end up like resulting into a lot of use of jargon and you know like look at these horrible hacks you could be next so it's interesting to hear that the perspective should be more about a value added or profit increase, rather than necessarily, you know, uh, focusing it on a sol- solely a risk. And I think you're apt to say that you know the, these business decision makers they are they're familiar with risk, and to try to put cybersecurity in its own sort of category of, of uh, is is kind of foolhardy because it encompasses kind of their whole landscape. So that that's quite interesting. And related to the
2: aspect of attaching security and risk to. Profit. Uh, I I feel that very often with cyber with cybersecurity, it's hard to um, make that direct connection because a lot of times the losses are are difficult to capture. So I'm curious, what is how is it that you you manage to attach, um, you know, profit margin and and you know revenue against something that is difficult to. Wrap your head around, or to capture, like you know, uh, cybersecurity with your data is being copied, not necessarily destroyed, but um, different things that that are are hard to understand for for people who aren't super versed in cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a number of enterprise risk models that include cyber. In fact, uh, in the book, in the Cyber Elephant in the Boardroom, there's a a, a guest chapter from Bob Gartner dealing exactly with that topic, Um, and it's really about what kind of kpis do you need to look at on on your spending with regards to cyber and what cyber allows you to do that you couldn't do before um and and those models are are potentially complicated uh, at first but they, they actually very easy to manage once you put them in place um the, uh, the uh, of course the, the tendency is to look at Um, the cost of a breach, right? And there are a number of reports out there that tell you, you know, the average cost of a breach is $23 or $25. It's generally speaking in anywhere between $10 and and $40 per per record. Um, And so you say, okay, well, if I've got like a million records that have been uh, affected, that's anywhere between 10 and 40 million. And that's, that's what it's going to cost me. So the simplistic way of looking at it is would it have cost me 10 million or 40 million to actually prevent the breach from happening? And it's not necessarily a bad way of looking at it, but it's not a complete way. Um, it, you look at what's been happening in 2020, uh, a lot of organizations have had no choice but to fast track their digitization projects um, because we essentially had to stay home. So um, a lot of organizations were like, well, we either digitize or we die. And so when they went through that digitization process, they didn't necessarily look at the cybersecurity aspect and they did it the wrong way. But those who did it the right way um, by making it secure can actually say, okay, well, the, the cybersecurity investment that we made in the digitization platform is actually allowing us to reach out to 20 new countries, 5 new industries, 25,000 customers at an average of a, a grand per customer and suddenly you're starting to get a feel for the impact of good cybersecurity and compliance on the ability to increase your profits.
0: So what would you say is the greatest obstacle to communicating these, you know, cybersecurity needs?
1: So I um, and it's funny in, in the book I talk about that concept uh, that i coined uh, the uh, five stages of cybersecurity grief um and the five stages uh, of cybersecurity grief for the board or the c level are as follows so the first one is denial cyber doesn't apply to me uh, as a board member because my job is to provide strategic advice to talk about generic risk uh, to create profits for shareholders to create jobs uh, to acquire companies and and so on and so on. So don't bother me with cyber. That that's not in my remit and it's actually not my responsibility. Which but by, by the way is is not correct. Um, the second one is anger. Leave me alone. We've given you money to hire a chief security officer, a compliance officer, a legal officer. Uh, we give you 10 million a year to buy firewalls, antivirus, and so on. So you know, just get off my back. I it's not my problem. The next one is bargaining okay, well, our competitors have been hacked. The regulator is sending us letters saying that they might do an audit. So maybe what we can do is we'll do it a la carte. We'll do a few policies. We'll um, train a few people. We'll hire a reputable firm to start and come and do an audit. So if they come to us, we'll be able to say we're in good hands. And that's a good start, but it's not really the answer that you need. The next one is depression. Oh my God, we have been hacked. Oh my God, the regulator is at the door and we are going to be fined and we are going to be named and shamed and some heads are going to roll. What are we going to do? And then eventually it's the acceptance stage. And the acceptance stage is where you say, do you know what? Actually, we're probably doing 60 to 70% of what we're supposed to do. Yes, we're not doing it in a way that we can demonstrate to the regulator or the enforcement body, but we can fix that. Um, And the gap that we have is not a, is not necessarily a massive gap. We can get technology, we can get consultants, we can hire people, and it will actually put us in a much better position for digitization, for um, a- addressing new, ma- new markets, for improving how we work, uh, and actually will have a positive impact on on our reputation, which, by the way, also has Um, uh, waiting in in the boardroom, right? So the value of your reputation. You don't want bad cybersecurity to impact the value of your reputation. So I think that the the biggest obstacle is really to get them to go through those five stages as fast as we can so that they get to the acceptance stage. And and once you you have them at the acceptance stage, you get their buy-in and you get them to sponsor uh, not just financially, but like f- with time and with energy to sponsor the fact that cybersecurity and compliance actually adds value to the business.
2: So, uh, given your resume and and you know all the different places in the world that you've worked in regards to cybersecurity, I'm really curious about the reception of cybersecurity in an international business context. Right. So, is uh, you know is is the need for cybersecurity? Um, on, in the sea level, is it more recognized or less recognized in the United States? Or um, how do Americans talk about cybersecurity versus Irish versus French versus Australians? Uh, you have so much uh, interesting customers from around the world. I'm curious, what has been your experience with you know, people from all over the world who are working in the same industry?
1: So I think that um, you have to keep the legal and uh, compliance context um, in mind right so uh, generally speaking in the us over the last 20 30 years it was all about we're not going to tell you how to secure the data but we're going to tell you what we're going to do to you if something goes wrong primarily with data uh, any type of data breach regulations uh, state regulation that that was there starting in, in in california many years ago um, in Europe, it was exactly the opposite. It was like, we're going to tell you how to protect the data, um, and if something goes wrong, you're on your own because your reputation will be in shatters, and anyway, uh, you'll have to pay the price that way. Yes, we will give you a fine, but that's not going to be the driver. What we've seen over the last few years is a convergence between those two um, those two areas. And um, we've seen, for instance, MA-201 uh, in, in, uh, in Massachusetts a few years ago which was highly inspired by um, the European Data Protection Directive and, and GDPR which was being being rolled out or being um, uh, prepared at the time uh, and that was the first in the. US where we could see uh, the government, albeit the state government saying, rather than the federal one, saying you need to protect the data in the first place. Meanwhile, in, uh, in, in Europe, you saw uh, the UK, France, Spain and, and other countries saying, well, we're now going to fine you if there's a breach. And then with GDPR today, uh, you see that, um, you know, the, 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 the concept of dealing with a breach and the concept of having to pay a huge fine for a breach is now incorporated. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., we see CCPA, we see Virginia, we see uh, other states that are actually saying now we're going to tell you how to protect the data in the first place. So there's a convergence there Um, looking at other um, areas um, like Australia, China, uh, Africa and so on. Uh, or even Brazil. I mean, Brazil has LGPD, which is, uh, again, highly inspired from, uh, from, from GDPR. Uh, Kenya just uh, enacted a new um, regulation, which again is akin to GDPR. CCPA in the US uh, is, uh, has a, a good overlap with, with GDPR, albeit knowing that the concept of consent in CCPA is very different from, from GDPR. Um, and so we're seeing that kind of global uh, shift towards something that is similar but has enough differences that if you're a global business, it's a pain to comply with. Um, but I think that what you do need to have is a, is, a, is a basis that allows you to dial back to all of these. And, and that's one thing that I talk about in the book, which it's the model that I created about 12 years ago called the five pillars of security framework which is based on the idea that wherever you're based in, in, in the world, whichever industry, whatever size your business is, if you look at security and compliance from a in, an information governance, a data, data system security compliance, you can always dial back to five common denominators. And those de- denominators are physical security, people security, data security, infrastructure security, which is your wider infrastructure, your networks, your remote networks, your subsidiaries your franchisees your cloud your applications your third parties fourth parties and then crisis management what do you do when something goes wrong so if you're able to drive a security strategy based on those five pillars you will definitely hit 80 to 90 percent of lgpd gdpr ccpa and many others and i think that the challenge sometimes uh, going back to your earlier question with the board is that those uh, board members that are somewhat familiar with those three-letter acronym uh, regulations they need to comply with, they're like, well, you know, we want to do the right thing, but there's too many differences. We need, you know, is there something simple that we can do that will allow us from a business perspective to drive all of that?
0: So do you think that, you know, the words in terms of driving decision making for business, do you think those words can be applied to the policymaking context?
1: The policymaking context at government level, you mean?
0: Yes, at the government level.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know sometimes there's there's a um, there's a disconnect between the current state of regulation and the current state of technology, and that's a, that's a known fact. I would I would I would say um, regulation is typically behind. Uh, and i'll give you a perfect example um you look at hipaa in the us right so hipaa is 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 very old and it's got some very good it's got the five rules and it's got some very good control points that are uh, that you need to put in place but at the time when uh when hipaa was being designed very few health systems were using cloud. Now they're all using cloud. They're all going towards that idea of providing the end users with a, a hotel-like experience where they come in and they check in online and they get access to the internet and they can order food when they're in the, in the room and they can um, maybe subscribe to whatever service is available there. And all of this means that you now have... Um, web applications, mobile applications, cloud-based systems um, that may or may not have been uh, created by the health systems themselves. And you look at HIPAA and you look at secure coding and security by design and default. You don't really find that in HIPAA. It needs to be modernized, right? And so, um, and I'm just speaking on HIPAA because it's an easy example. But there's many more that that need to be updated because we're not keeping in keeping in touch. Um, and so. How do we make sure that the the lawmakers and the policy makers stay in touch with all of this, and they don't end up just being completely reactive? Um, I think again, we, we you know we need to educate them. Um, you could easily apply the five stages of cybersecurity grief for, to privacy uh, lawmakers in in some countries. Um, you 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 know and and if you get them to the acceptance stage that they need to stay in touch with what's happening they might make they might come up with proposals and drafts that that are of of regulations that are actually more future safe uh, the challenge that we have is we, we don't exactly know where, you know there are predictions and we can see like the advent of ai and quantum and so on but we don't exactly know how it's going to shape out in like 5 10 years time so what we need to do is we need regulators that actually build um new policies that will allow us to incorporate the latest technology within those frameworks when they become available as opposed to building a framework that's based on looking back we need to look forward
0: all right excellent well it's it's good to hear that there's some diversity of how this approach could be potentially applied So what we're going to do now is we're going to give you with a sort of scenario question.
2: Uh yeah. So we're both, um, Jacob and I are both in the C-suite for a uh, private health firm. Um, and our, there has been a, an outbreak of, of ransomware across a lot of our hardware. Um, and that's, you know, it's an increasing blight in, the, in a larger context. But now, you know, our operations are being interrupted by ransomware. Um, different hospitals that we service are being, um, are being interrupted Um, There's a lot of confusion up and down the the chain of command. Um, We're panicking. We're definitely in that that first stage of grief, as you mentioned. (laughs) Um, So, you know, how would you navigate a situation like this where neither of us in this scenario are very, um, you know, educated in cybersecurity? Um, How do you approach something like, you know, this situation?
1: first of all i I would sit down with you with um a pot of very strong coffee and and and, um i i would pour you a a a nice cup of coffee and i would i would i would tell you that it's 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 all going to be fine in the end um that that'll be the first thing The, the second thing i will do is i will definitely try to convince you not to pay any ransom uh the advice in the industry is not to pay um because if you pay first of all you have no guarantee that they'll give you the key to decrypt uh if you pay you make yourself available as somebody who will pay more ransom uh and um uh, that that that's the wrong thing to do in in my opinion and and i think that the most uh security commentators are are, are also saying that it's not it's not the right thing to do uh then i would look at uh the problem at this point in time, the problem at this point in time is you're a victim of ransomware. So you lost access to some of your hospitals, if I understood correctly. Um, you may actually need to disclose that uh, under HIPAA, uh, on the HIPAA, depending on on how many records are, are being uh, um, affected and depending on whether the, the data has been released or not. And, and you may need to get legal advice on that um so i would definitely uh, invite somebody legal to to the table Uh, i would look at whether you have the backups i would look at how fast you can get back and running with all of your critical systems Um, so there should be really two streams of work in parallel the first stream is to deal with the crisis and the second one is to say whilst i'm going to have a team deal with the crisis i'm also going to have a team uh, look at how we can make sure that doesn't happen again. And that may well involve re-engineering the architecture of your systems. It may well involve um, it changing some systems. It may involve having to invest in additional technologies and so on. But what you don't want to do, which unfortunately we see too much with ransomware, is people saying, okay, fine, I accept the advice. I'm not going to pay. I'm going to try and get back to where I'm supposed to be as fast as I can, and then and then that's it and, and that's the wrong thing to do you 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 clearly um you you, you can't uh, expect different results by doing the the same thing all the time uh, as Einstein would say so uh, you know it, it's a uh, you, you need to re-engineer the way you work with, with 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 security so i would have a look at um how do you acquire data or create data what kind of data flows do you have? Which ones are critical? Which ones do you need to to protect more than others? Uh, what are the regulations that apply to you? And I would try and redesign that 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 overall cybersecurity strategy and, and nearly say, look, you know, this could be a blessing in disguise. Maybe maybe you you needed to have a wake up call so that you realize that actually you're you're not actually taking security and compliance seriously. You just do it bit by bit. And I, I often say that. Security is a journey and not a destination. It's a continuous journey. Yes, you have a few pit stops along the way where you can breathe. But like the attack vectors change all the time, the regulations change all the time, your own systems change all the time, you may acquire a company, you may downsize, you may um, have remote working because of COVID. and, And so everything changes, it's a moving target. So therefore, it needs to be continuous. So uh, yeah, I would do the two streams, I would deal with the incident at hand, and I would take the opportunity to redesign the security strategy. And in order to do that, I would get you to get me in front of your, your board, your overall board, not to do a fear thing, because we've already uh, discussed that that doesn't work, but to try and say to them, look, we are where we are, but let's turn this into an opportunity for the company.
2: Wow, I mean, I'm not even part of this hospital board, and I feel very comforted.
0: Appreciate uh, walking us through sort of that incident management situation for us.
2: Yeah, it was really it was really uh, informative to like hear your thought process and try to reframe the uh, the situation as a positive. Because I, you know that that's a that's a fantastic approach to dealing with people who are no doubt panicking and who are afraid. Um, it definitely speaks to your experience with the subject. Um, Speaking with experience, uh, at the top of the show, we mentioned that you wrote The Cyber Elephant in the Boardroom. Um, What inspired you to turn your expertise and your um, experience into uh, a book? Uh, What was your purpose? What inspired you to go about that route?
1: So um, I, I run an advisory board called the, the VG Trust Global Advisory Board, which is a, a separate division of the of the group. And uh, it's a not, non-commercial platform where I bring in CEOs, CISOs, uh, board of directors, regulators, um, law enforcement like FBI, Interpol, French police, NYPD and, and many others researchers, uh, security bloggers, and people that write books and so on. So I have a group of about 700 people uh, worldwide uh, from currently 30 countries with um, uh, eight chapters. Uh, we've, we've, we've had to redo the governance of the group now because it's so big. Um, and we get together to discuss what's happening in the industry and how we can become a voice of the industry not a lobbying voice, more like a voice that says, hey, you know, we've had so many issues collectively. We haven't seen it all, um, but we've seen a lot, and we're quite happy to discuss what's working and what's not working. And so um, I've been, you know, I've been a contributor to several publications for a number of years, and uh, some of the members of the advisory board one day said to me, oh, you should write a book about your five pillars and your experience and you know you it's already in the public domain anyway so you you know why don't you just uh, explain how you you people can use it and so um, I decided to uh, write the book uh, and I thought very quickly that the book would have much more much more of an impact if I could get some members of the advisory board to write guest chapters on specific um, areas and so Uh, The book has about 260 pages, I think, and and I wrote about 70% of the book. And the rest is um, stories from uh, members of the advisory board who tell their experience and benchmark their experience against those five pillars. So we've got people from banking, from digitization, uh, from enterprise risk management, from secure coding... Uh, we've got folks uh, from uh, uh, ISACA, for instance, uh, in terms of certification and so on. And I think it's uh, it, it. What I really wanted is I. I my. My objective was to give something that was written in, in plain English that, the board or the sea level could use as as a as some sort of a a reference in order to get ideas on how to get buy-in for their cybersecurity and their compliance uh, frameworks. But the real problem that I was trying to address is that if you're a chief security officer, a risk manager, and you do your job correctly, uh, nobody knows your name. The minute there's a breach, the minute there's a problem, you're public enemy number one. And I actually don't think that's fair. And so I wanted to uh, share my experience as to how we can all work together and how the board has a mandate around cyber accountability and they need to work with with CISOs. And I also wanted to give CISOs um, and security people some ammunition on on how to talk to the board in a language that that, that would get them buy-in.
0: Well, I'm sure they're very deeply thankful for having that sort of language to uh... To uh, cover themselves a little bit there. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for speaking with us. Uh, It's, you know, a concept that's obviously near and dear to our heart is communicating cyber issues to an audience that isn't necessarily as technical as us. So it has been a joy to have you on the podcast. Um,
2: I just wanted to thank you for your time and uh, tell our audience where, if they were interested in purchasing or reading The Cyber Elephant in the boardroom, uh, where could they find that?
1: We uh, can find it on, on Amazon or we can find it on the VG Trust website, uh, www.vgtrust.com.
0: Thanks for joining us as we journey through communicating cyber issues to C Suite executives. Be sure to look out for our next episode and follow us on Twitter at Decrypted Podcast. Or you can reach out to us directly at DecryptedPodcast at gmail.com to suggest an episode or a potential guest. Thank you as always and stay safe out there.